Thank you for listening to our church podcast, where it is our joy to share helpful truths from the Bible. We pray this serves as one more tool to help develop leaders within our church and community who love and honor Jesus and reveal it by loving others. If you have any questions or comments about any of the messages, we invite you to join us on any Wednesday, 6 p.m., for a group discussion on the passages and sermons found here. All right, well, this morning we have a very interesting text. Uh, before us, and so we're going to have a fun time talking about this today. Uh, Last week, you may remember, we talked about the story where Jesus calmed the storm on the Sea of Galilee. Uh, It was a dramatic demonstration of his power uh, over even nature, that he could control wind and waves, and today's text is a continuation of the very same day. Uh, this is a busy day in the life of Jesus. He was teaching on this, on, uh, in Galilee. He goes across the sea, gets caught in that terrible storm. Uh, he calms the storm, and now later that day, he lands finally where he was uh, intending to get. Verse 26 says, They arrived at the country of the Gadarenes, which is over against Galilee. Uh, your translation may say the country of the Gadarenes or the Gerasenes, and that's because there's manuscript evidence for both readings. If you look at the parallel passages, in fact, some say he landed in Gadara, some say Gerasa, some even say Gergasa, and these are three different places. Uh, it seems most likely, geographically, the way that the text describes this, that it took place in Gergasa, which was a city right on the Sea of Galilee. There's some, even some cliffs there that oversee uh, the lake. So it seems like that was the most likely location was Gergasa. Uh, Gadara was very close by, and uh, Gerasa was a little bit further, but it was a larger city. And so it's sort of like when people ask me where I'm from, a lot of times I say I'm from Plattsburgh, New York. Uh, technically not true. I'm from Morrisonville, but no one's ever heard of Morrisonville. And so the town 10 minutes away is Plattsburgh, so I say I'm from Plattsburgh. And so th- these were three different towns all in the same region on the other side of the Sea of Galilee. Uh, and so it's really no problem that it's referred to. Uh, depending on who's writing, they refer to this as the land of Gadara, the land of Gergasa, the land of Gerasa. Uh, All of these are on that opposite side of the Sea of Galilee from where he went. Uh, Jesus spent most of his time on the northwest side of the Sea of Galilee, like places like Capernaum. Uh, This is on the southeast side of the Sea of Galilee, so it's directly across the lake. Uh, This is Gentile territory. Uh, This is not uh, a place where Jews would be. This is not a place where the synagogues were. This was Gentile territory. And we'll see that later on. So that's verse 26. They arrive at this uh, place on the Sea of Galilee. And verse 27 says that when they went forth to land, there met him out of the city a certain man which had devils long time and wear no clothes, neither abode in any house but in the tombs. And here we are introduced to the maniac of Gadara, as he is known. Uh, He was a demon-possessed man. Luke tells us he had been possessed uh, for a long time. So presumably for years of his life, he had been in this condition. Uh, Luke tells us he wore no clothing. Uh, He lived apart from society in the tombs. In Mark's account of this same event, he has this detail about the man. It says in verse 5 of chapter 5, Always, night and day, he was in the mountains and in the tombs, crying and cutting himself with stones. This man was miserably oppressed by these demons. The demons caused him not only to be ostracized from society and to be really in a a miserable life. Can you imagine uh, all day crying out and cutting yourself, living among the tombs? Uh, He was just in a miserable condition. Uh, But also, Luke tells us he was violent. He seemed to have possessed uh, superhuman strength. 
Luke 8, verse 29 says, He had commanded the unclean spirit to come out of the man, for oftentimes it had caught him, and he was kept bound with chains and in fetters, and he broke the bands and was driven of the devil into the wilderness. And so uh, this demon-possessed man was very dangerous, not only to himself, but to others around him. Uh, the people of the city had tried to chain him up, and he would break out of whatever restraints they put on him. They had, uh, such was the, the power of the demons in him. The, these demons gave him uh, superhuman strength, and nobody could uh, subdue him. Matthew 8, verse 28, the same uh, account adds that nobody passed by that way anymore because of this man. They were so scared uh, to even get near him that they just avoided passing by the particular place where he hung out. So this man is there, and he meets Jesus when the boat arrives at land. He may have come running toward the ship, uh, like he presumably often did to attack anybody that was there, but when he was close enough to see who it was, the sight of Jesus stopped the demons. Verse 28 says, When he saw Jesus, he cried out and fell down before him, and with a loud voice said, What have I to do with thee, Jesus, thou Son of God most high? I beseech thee, torment me not. He says to Jesus, what have I to do with thee? That's a Hebrew uh, idiom. It made its way into colloquial Greek. It, it's used when a person is unjustly bothering someone or when someone is asked to get involved in something that isn't their business. Uh, in our vernacular, we might say something like, uh, leave me alone. That's basically what he's saying. Uh, leave me alone. Notice that the demon immediately knows who Jesus is. He addresses him as Jesus, the Son of God Most High. It won't be until the very end of Luke's gospel that we get a human being who recognizes Jesus as God's Son and, and says so. The centurion at the cross of Christ, when he says, surely this was the Son of God, he's the first person in Luke's gospel uh, to recognize that. But the demons recognized it right away. They knew who Jesus was. They knew that he was God's Son. Notice further the request of the demon that they make to Jesus. Uh, he says, I beg you, don't torment me. Matthew 8 records the same statement this way. It says, Behold, they cried out, saying, What have we to do with thee, Jesus, thou Son of God? Art thou come hither to torment us before the time? The demons know their place. They, they can't do battle against Jesus. They are completely under his control. All they can do is beg him to be merciful to them and not torment them. We're going to talk about what that means when we get to verse 31, because it's explained more there. But for now, I want you to notice at the end of this verse where it says, don't torment us before the time. They know what's coming. They know there is a day coming in which they will be judged, in which Satan and his demons will be condemned to hell forever. Uh, that is a reality that the demons are very much so aware of. But when they see Jesus, they're afraid that he's coming uh, right now to condemn them, that he's coming right now to judge them uh, before their time. And so in these verses, we see the power of these demons. They so oppressed this man that he was uncontrollable and violent, doing harm to himself and to others who passed by. But to contrast the power of the demons, next we see the power of Jesus. In verse 30, Jesus asked him, saying, What is thy name? And he said, Legion, because many de devils were entered into him. A legion means thousands. Uh, it's a Latin term for a large group of soldiers. And now we see that Jesus is not just dealing with one demon, but he's dealing with many. Jesus asked the man what his name was, not for information, but for revelation. Jesus knew who these demons were, but he wanted everybody else around them to know that he was about to do battle with thousands of demons, not just one or two. I think that's the reason he asked for the name. It was to demonstrate his power and authority over the demonic world. 
Uh, one Jesus versus thousands of demons, and it's not even close. Uh, the demons are powerful, but Jesus is far more powerful. Luke 8, verse 31 says, They besought him that he would not command them to go out into the deep. Now, that's very interesting. Uh, the verb here is in the imperfect tense, meaning they are repeatedly begging Jesus uh, not to make them go out into the deep. A better translation might be the word abyss. Uh, it's abyssos in Greek. The abyss. It seems like this was the place where fallen angels or demons were kept until their final judgment. If you're familiar with the book of Revelation, uh, this word is translated there as the bottomless pit. Uh, this is the place where Satan is bound for a thousand years in chapter 20 before his final destruction. Uh, this is also in chapter 11 of Revelation where the beast rises out from. Uh, and then finally in chapter 9 of Revelation, the bottomless pit is opened and smoke arises out of it like a great furnace. And this is where some of the demonic forces are released for a time to judge those on earth. All of those are references to the bottomless pit. And they're translating this very same word, abyssos, the abyss. And that is where demons, the demons in this man are begging Jesus not to send them. It's a place of torment where demons are bound, awaiting their final judgment. Uh, some demons had already been cast into the abyss. Uh, we're going to go to first to Genesis 6. Genesis 6, verse 1 says, It came to pass when men began to multiply on the face of the earth, and daughters were born unto them, that the sons of God saw the daughters of men, that they were fair, and they took them wives of all which they chose. You may be confused about what's going on there. The phrase sons of God uh, is used elsewhere in the Old Testament, and particularly in the book of Job. It refers to angels. Uh, sons of Elohim. The word Elohim doesn't necessarily always mean God. It's a broader term. And in fact, when you see the word angels in the Old Testament, it's normally translating the same Hebrew word, Elohim. Uh, it basically means heavenly being. And so the sons of the heavenly being, that, that would be angels. These are angelic spirits. And these angelic beings, in this case, they're fallen angels, what we would call demons. These demonic beings in Genesis 6 begin intermarrying with human women. Uh, however strange that may sound, that's what's happening in verse 2. And the result was giants uh, super, with superhuman strength that were incredibly wicked. I know this is a little bit strange, uh, but I have a point where I'm going with this. Genesis 6 verse 4 says, There were giants in the earth in those days, and also after that, when the sons of God came in unto the daughters of men, and they bare children to them, the same became mighty men, which were of old, men of renown. And God saw the wickedness of man was great on the earth, and that every imagination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. You may have heard that verse before and thought that it just meant uh, human beings became really wicked and bad. Well, there's a little bit more going on there. Uh, these are demonic forces that have begun intermarrying with humans and creating this just wicked uh, civilization. And this is what led to God destroying the earth in the flood. Uh, this Genesis 6 is the story of Noah's Ark, where he builds the ark, and then the floodwaters come, destroy all of humanity. Uh, if that seems like, boy, God's being really harsh to humans, again, there's more going on there. Uh, he is wiping out this wicked um, generation, and he spares Noah and his family in order to start over fresh. And we're told in Jude and in Second Peter what God did to punish these demons, the ones who had caused all of this wickedness. Uh, Jude 6 says, The angels which kept not their first estate, but left their own habitation, he hath reserved in everlasting chains under darkness unto the judgment of the great day. So these fallen angels who did this wickedness in Genesis 6 were chained in the abyss. 
They were kept in darkness awaiting their final judgment. And the reason is given in the next verse. It says, even as Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities about them in like manner, giving themselves over to fornication and going after strange flesh, are set forth for an example, suffering the vengeance of eternal fire. Uh, You remember in Genesis, the story of Sodom and Gomorrah, this wicked place, uh, sexual perversion going on, and God rained down fire to destroy the city of Sodom and Gomorrah. And he did this as an example. He did this so that other people in other cities would see this and say, we better not act like that. We better not live in that wickedness because God judges uh, that type of sin. And Jude says just like that, God judged these fallen angels in Genesis 6 by casting them into the abyss uh, as an example to the rest of the demonic world so that they would not do this again. Second uh, Peter chapter 2, For if God spared not the angels that sinned, and that's referring to the Genesis 6 angels, but cast them down to hell, and delivered them into chains of darkness to be reserved in the judgment, and spared not the old world, but saved Noah the eighth person, a preacher of righteousness, bringing in the flood upon the world of the ungodly, and turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah into ashes, condemned them with an overthrow making them an example unto those that after should live ungodly. So again, Peter is saying the same thing, that what God did to these fallen angels was an example, uh, just like what he did to Sodom was an example, that anybody who follows in those ways uh, should be fearful of God's judgment. And certainly it worked. Uh, These demons, thousands of years later, are scared to death that Jesus is going to throw them into the abyss, just like he did those other angels. And they begin pleading and begging with him, please don't send us there. Don't make us go to the abyss. So apparently what God did to punish the demons before the flood uh, sent a shockwave throughout the demonic world. Uh, They were scared to death of being judged in a similar manner, and that's why they're responding to Jesus when they see him in this way. Back to our text in Luke 8. I know it's a bit of a detour with some other text there, but I just wanted to clarify what's happening. Verse 31, they they beg him, they besought him, that he would not command them to go out into the deep. Uh, One quick note before we leave this. Why didn't Jesus send them into the abyss? Uh, It seems to me like, I mean, wouldn't the world be better off with a few thousand less demons? Uh, Why didn't he just condemn them? Those pigs certainly would have appreciated it. And as difficult as this may seem to us, God uses demons. God uses the devil himself. We see it in this text, we see it in many others, that God is the sovereign ruler of the universe, including Satan and his demons. They must obey his commands. Uh, When Jesus commands a demon, it obeys. It has no choice. He is in complete control. And that means God can command them to do whatever he wants, and they must obey. So the only reason demons exist and are, are not being bound right now and thrown into the abyss is because in some way they are serving God's purposes. The devil is serving God's purposes. God uses the devil. I know it's strange to think about, uh, but I want to th- show you a few examples in the Old Testament where God specifically says that he used demons to accomplish his purposes. You can look these up later if you'd like. They're not on the screen. I'm just going to reference them. Uh, 1 Samuel 16, you're probably familiar with this. An evil spirit from God is sent to afflict Saul. Uh, King Saul, this is where he throws a javelin at David and all that chaos ensues. Uh, God sent this evil spirit to Saul to cause him to act in this way. 1 Kings 22, God sends lying spirits to deceive Ahab into going into a battle in which he will die. Remember, Ahab was a wicked king, the wickedest of all the kings of Israel. 
And in order to judge Ahab, uh, God sends a lying spirit to deceive him into going into a battle. So he thinks he's going to win the battle and he ends up dying. And, and again, 2 Kings 22 says God, uh, the spirit actually comes to God. It's a very interesting text. And he says, I can trick Ahab if you'd like. And God says, yes, go do that. Like God authorizes this demon uh, to do this. Judges chapter 9, God sends an evil spirit to sow discord between Abimelech and the men of Shechem. So they will go to war. Uh, and then finally, another example is God uses the angel of death in the book of Exodus, to kill the firstborn in Egypt during the plagues. And so throughout the Old Testament, we see examples where God utilizes demonic forces to judge people. Uh, Martin Luther famously said, even the devil is God's devil. Uh, God uses these spirits. They are under his control, and they do his bidding. All the forces of Satan are subservient to the authority of Jesus. And if he allows them to survive, uh, it must be that he is using them to accomplish something. Verse 32, uh, there was a herd of many swine feeding on the mountain, and they besought him, the demons begged him that he would suffer or allow them to enter into them. And he suffered them, he allowed them. Uh, with the mention of the herd of pigs, again, we know we're in Gentile territory uh, because Jews don't typically raise pigs. I remember it was one of the great disappointments when I went to visit Israel. There was no bacon anywhere in Israel. I even went to an American like burger joint there, and I was thinking, oh, I can get a bacon cheeseburger. No such luck. Uh, there is no bacon there. And so uh, the fact that they would have herds of pigs being kept and sold uh, tells us this is Gentile territory. Why do the demons want to go into the pigs? Uh, what is happening there? I have absolutely no idea. So if you're wanting a good answer, I have nothing for you. Uh, the text does not tell us. There is no indication as to why uh, demons would want to enter into pigs and kill them, what they were trying to achieve there. Uh, so if you're hoping I have a brilliant answer for you, I'm sorry, I have no clue. But the demons asked Jesus to let them go into the pigs instead of sending them into the abyss, and Jesus allowed them to do so. Verse 33 says, Then went the devils out of the man and entered into the swine, the pigs, and the herd ran violently down a steep place into the lake and were choked. Lest you think we're talking about only a few pigs, Mark tells us in his account exactly how many. At the end of the verse, he mentions the unclean spirits went out, uh, entered into the swine. The herd ran violent, violently down a steep place into the sea. There were about 2,000 and were choked in the sea. Can you imagine being a fisherman on the Sea of Galilee on this particular day? Uh, you're sitting there minding your own business, probably far enough away you don't really hear what's going on, and all of a sudden, 2,000 pigs, uh, demon-possessed pigs, come running off a cliff into the lake next to you. And if you want a theological term for this, it's called suicide. So, anyways. Uh, this, this leads to the in inevitable question, why did Jesus give the demons permission to go into the pigs? And ultimately, I have to say, I don't think I have a great answer for this one either. The text simply doesn't answer that question. But if I had to take a stab at it, I would say that this was to visually show the power of Jesus and his authority over the demons. In other words, if he had simply commanded the demons uh, to leave this man, uh, perhaps other theories could have been proposed as to how he was cured. Uh, you might say this man was just faking being demon-possessed, and then he stopped the act when Jesus told the demons to leave, so it was some sort of conspiracy or something. But if you watch Jesus command the spirits to leave the man and enter the pigs, and suddenly the man was perfectly normal, and all these pigs start freaking out and, and do their swine dive right into the lake, uh, there would be no doubt what had happened. Uh, you can't really accuse the pigs of being in on the conspiracy. And so I think what's, what my guess is what's happening here is Jesus was trying to demonstrate who he was and the nature of his power and authority as the Son of God 
by this dramatic display. And the people who saw this, uh, they got the message. Verse 34 says, when they, when they that fed them, fed the pigs, uh, saw what was done, they fled and went and told it into the city and the country. Uh, so these, these pig farmers go into Gadara and they start telling everybody what happened. And the whole town comes out to see. Verse 35, then they went out to see what was done and came to Jesus and found the man out of whom the devils were departed, sitting at the feet of Jesus, clothed and in his right mind. And they were afraid. You remember last week, uh, after Jesus calmed the storm, the disciples uh, were afraid. They were afraid of Jesus being in their boat. They were afraid to even be around him. And so in the same way, these men of Gadara are afraid of Jesus. They, they knew this maniac. They had seen him for years. Uh, they knew the way that he had acted. They had tried to restrain him with chains, and they'd seen the demons give supernatural strength to this man to just rip the chains off. Uh, these people had avoided passing by that way because they knew that's where the maniac lives. Uh, they had, and now they're seeing him, he's clothed, and he's acting normal. They'd never seen him like this. And however afraid they were of the demons, Jesus was clearly more powerful. If he just spoke a command and all of these thousands of demons obeyed, uh, here before them then was someone far more powerful than any demon. And so they were now afraid of Jesus. Verse 36 says, They also which saw it told them by what means he that was possessed of the devil was healed. Then the whole multitude of the country of the Gadarenes round about besought him to depart from them. For they were taken with great fear. And he went up into the ship and returned back again. They begged Jesus to leave their country because they were so terrified at his power. And so we've seen the power of the demons and the power of Jesus. Lastly, Luke ends with the account of the power of a testimony. Verse 38 says, The man out of whom the devils were departed besought him that he might be with him. But Jesus sent him away, saying, Return to thine own house and show how great things God hath done unto thee. He went his way and published throughout the whole city how great things Jesus had done unto him. Uh, the man out of whom the demons were cast wants to follow Christ. They're begging Jesus to leave, and he says, I want to go with you. He starts to get into the boat. The former maniac wants to go with Jesus. He wants to be a disciple. But Jesus doesn't let him. Uh, Jesus has a different plan for this man. We've talked before about how there were many times where Jesus performed miracles, and he told people, uh, don't tell anyone. We've come across this already. We're going to actually come across it uh, next week when we get to the raising of Jairus' daughter. Uh, Jesus regularly performed miracles and then told the people who saw it, uh, don't tell anybody about this. And we've talked about why that might be, what he was trying to do here. In this instance, Jesus tells the man, uh, go tell everybody. Uh, go home and tell everyone what I've done for you. And I think the difference most likely is that this man, again, is living in Gentile territory. Uh, Jesus only tells people to keep miracles quiet when there are Jewish religious leaders in the area. I want to point out another detail from verse 39. I didn't notice this the first several times that I read it, but look at the wording in verse 39. Uh, Jesus says, go home and show the great things God has done for you. And then the man goes and tells everyone in the city the great things Jesus had done to him. He got it. He understood that Jesus was God. Mark 5:19 Howbeit Jesus suffered him not but saith unto him go home to thy friends and tell them how great things the Lord hath done for thee and hath had compassion on thee and he departed and began to publish in Decapolis how great things Jesus had done for him and all men did marvel the maniac became a missionary 
He began spreading the news of Jesus throughout the Decapolis. Uh, that's a word that comes from two Greek words, deca meaning ten, polis meaning city. This is a, a region of ten cities. And so he is going throughout this entire region spreading the news of Jesus. Uh, this man was the only representative of Christ in this entire area. Uh, later on, Jesus will send out the twelve apostles to start preaching in the towns around. Uh, but that, that's all happening in Israel. Uh, later in Luke, he sends out 70 uh, preachers to represent him to the other cities. But again, that's all in Israel. Uh, this man is the only representative on uh, the other side of the lake. And so it seems to me that this was actually the whole reason Jesus took this trip. Remember last week, Jesus says, let's go over to the other side of the lake. He doesn't tell them why. Uh, they get into the boat. They go through that terrible storm. They arrive at the other side. He heals the demon, and then he turns around and leaves. Uh, this whole trip, the whole purpose of this trip, was to make one convert and then send him out as a missionary to the rest of the region. One final detail uh, from the story before we close with some application. Mark 5, verse 2 says, When he was come out of the ship, immediately there met him out of the tombs a man with an unclean spirit who had his dwelling among tombs, and no man could bind him. No, not with chains. Verse 4 because that he had, often, uh, he had been often bound with fetters and chains, and the chains had been plucked asunder by him, and the fetters broken in pieces, neither could any man tame him. No one could help him. He was a lost cause. He was hopeless. There was nothing he could ever have done to change his condition. And there was nothing anyone else could do to try to tame him or to limit the damage that he did to himself or those around him. No one could help this man. But then Jesus showed up. And this story illustrates, perhaps better than any other, the transforming power of Christ. He can take a man like this, who no one else could help. Uh, he could do nothing for himself. No one else could do anything for him. But Jesus could take him and so completely transform him that at the end of the story, he starts a preaching ministry on behalf of Christ. Jesus took a maniac and turned him into a missionary. I think we tend to disassociate ourselves from this man because he's demon-possessed. I mean, I've got my issues, but I'm not like that at least, right? We all have our issues. We all have our struggles. But we look at this man, we think we're not that bad off. I think that's actually the point. If Jesus can change him, Jesus can change you. If you're in a rut spiritually or you feel like you can't beat the sin in your life that keeps coming back, this text should be an encouragement that if Jesus can change that guy, he can change you. He can take the most messed up and hopeless person and turn them into a surrendered disciple. And if he can fix that guy with all of his issues, he can fix you too with whatever issues you may have. Next, I want to ask, what does this text tell us about the types of people God uses? Uh, first, it really doesn't matter what you used to be. There's no such thing as a sinner beyond God's mercy to forgive. And that means there's no such thing as a sinner beyond God's grace to use. This man went from being a naked, violent, demon-possessed man to being the first preacher that Jesus sent out. In fact, far from disqualifying someone from being used of God, the extreme depravity of someone's life prior to their conversion, followed by a total transformation after meeting Jesus, is something that God uses as a powerful witness to the truthfulness of who Jesus is and what he can do in a person's life. God uses people just like this man all the time. And if you feel like you know, before I met Jesus, I was such a mess. Uh, I'm disqualified. God can't use me. Uh, I think this story proves God can use anyone. There's no such thing as a sinner beyond God's mercy to forgive, and that means there's no such thing as a sinner beyond God's grace to use. 
This also shows us how anyone who understands who Jesus is and what he's done for them is qualified to tell others. This guy didn't get a, a master's degree in theology before he went out and preached. He had gotten saved. He understood who Christ was. We see that. He knew Jesus was God, and he knew what he had done for him, and that was enough. And so he went out and just told everybody, I met this guy. He's God. Here's what he did for me. You should go talk to him. Uh, he, he introduced people to Christ with that simple testimony. This man got it. He understood that Jesus was God, and he had seen his power firsthand. He had experienced it in a way that no one else really had. And so he went and told everyone what a difference Jesus made in his life. If you know Christ, and if you know what he's done for you, you can tell others. They arrived at the country of the Gadarenes, which is over against Galilee, and he went forth to land. There met him out of the city a certain man which had devils long time and wear no clothes, neither abode in any house but in the tombs. When he saw Jesus, he cried out and fell down before him and with a loud voice said, What have I to do with thee, Jesus, thou Son of God most high? I beseech thee, torment me not. For he had commanded the unclean spirit to come out of the man, for oftentimes it had caught him and he was kept bound with chains and in fetters, and he brake the bands and was driven of the devil into the wilderness. Jesus asked him, saying, What is thy name? And he said, Legion, because many devils were entered into him. They besought him that he would not command them to go out into the deep. There was there and heard of many swine feeding on the mountain, and they besought him that he would suffer them to enter into them, and he suffered them. Then went the devils out of the man and entered into the swine, and the herd ran violently down a steep place into the lake and were choked. When they that fed them saw what was done, they fled and went and told it in the city and in the country. Then they went out to see what was done and came to Jesus and found the man out of whom the devils were departed, sitting at the feet of Jesus, clothed and in his right mind, and they were afraid. They also which saw it told them by what means he that was possessed of the devils was healed. Then the whole multitude of the country of the Gadarenes round about besought him to depart from them, for they were taken with great fear. He went up into the ship and returned back again. Now the man out of whom the devils were departed besought him that he might be with him. But Jesus sent him away, saying, Return to thine own house, and show how great things God hath done unto thee. He went his way and published throughout the whole city how great things Jesus had done unto him. Father, I pray that you would transform each one of us like you did this man. Again, we may not see ourselves as quite as messed up as he was, uh, but we all have issues. Everyone in this room we have our dark secrets, we have our problems, we have our struggles, every single person. And we are desperately in need of your transformation. We need your power. We can't fix us. We can't turn over a new leaf. And nobody else can do what you can do in our hearts. And so we pray, God, that you would take out the heart of stone, that you give us a heart of flesh, that you would uh, give us a mind that wants to follow you. Give us a desire to serve you and to obey you. And I pray that you would uh, then take each one of us and send us out, commission us like you did this man, to go and spread the news to everyone around us of your power to trans transform lives. That, that people would see in us a witness, that those who knew us before Christ would see us and see the change that you've made in our lives and come to faith in you as a result of that testimony. We thank you for this man, for this text, for all that it teaches us about you, about your power, about your compassion. Not only for this man, but also for those that he witnessed to, that you loved him so much, you went through that storm and you went across the lake, you took time out just to heal this one man and then go back home. We're thankful for your love, for your grace, and for your goodness. We pray that we would be a good testimony of that in our community, to our friends, to our family, to those around us. In the name of Christ we pray. Amen.
We hope the message you just heard was helpful to you. It means a lot to us that you would join us for this podcast. For more information about our church and meeting times, visit lbcmiller.com or call us at 219-885-9303. We would love to hear from you.